Welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Go to your refrigerator if you can. If not, take a mental inventory. Pull out the chicken, the kale, blueberries, ketchup, whatever. Pick out about 40% of all the food inside. Now picture throwing it in the trash. This happens every day. Up to 40% of all the food in America, from farms to restaurants to what's in our fridge, ends up wasted, spoiled, or in the trash, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Ellen Bowen does something about it. She heads the South Florida chapter of Food Rescue U.S. It's just one organization that helps get surplus food into the hands of people who need it. Fresh veggies left over from grocery stores or farms. Food that was cooked but wasn't served at restaurants. Even rescuing food from cruise ships. Food Rescue gets that surplus to shelters, rescue missions, and food pantries. Even after big events like the Super Bowl or this week's South Beach Food Festival. Food Rescue U.S. and other groups like it swoop in to save food while it's still fresh. We spent this month talking with people throughout the food industry, chefs, restaurant owners. So let's talk to someone who feeds people when the lights are off. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you. It's exciting to be here and certainly exciting to talk about food waste um, on this, the week of Miami Food Week and South Beach Wine and Food Festival. Right. We're thinking a lot about food this month. And, and I thought about you from the beginning of the month, like because I know what you do, what you and organizations like yours do behind the scenes. So kind of let's start with the kind of a basis. What are we talking about when we're talking about food waste? We're not talking about, uh, you know, the, the cream cheese in your in your fridge that went bad. No. Uh, give us a like round this out and give us a definition for what we're talking about. Well, most of food waste and it, as you said, it was 40. It's 40 percent of all food is is wasted. Yet one in seven go to bed hungry every single night. Those those numbers are astounding. They're staggering. They're really 40 percent is such a and, and I have several sources. They all relate back to the USDA uh, website. And it's just kind of, uh, it's staggering. It's really staggering. And, and especially in Miami-Dade County, too, you know, with the with COVID and even post-COVID, um, those numbers are even higher. And we're seeing it really every day. But what we consider food waste is anything that is edible, unsold, or unused. Um, it can't be touched by the consumer. Um, it needs to be kept um, refrigerated and handled safely. Um, there is a law, it's actually a federal law called the Bill Emerson Law, which allows for any food donor who wants to donate in good faith to be able to do so without any liability. I'm glad you brought that up because in the years that I was writing about food for the Miami Herald, this was a thing that I found that even yep. restaurant owners didn't realize that there's been a food uh, a law in the books for almost 30 years. Yeah, like 1996. A, yeah, that says that if you give food in good conscience, you as an individual, uh, uh, that, you know, there's no liability to it. Correct. You're, you're just trying to make sure this food goes to people who need it. And actually, Congress just passed this past December something called the Food Donation Improvement Act, which actually makes it easier and better even for a consumer to be able to donate food. So we're really looking at this being an important movement to get the food that normally would have been in landfills, but get it into the mouths of people that need it. Right, right. And so tell me a little little bit about your organization. So uh, Food Rescue U.S., how do people become involved in it? How do they, if I'm a restaurant owner, if I'm a, you know, a a private person who has, you know, leftover food or what have you, uh, you know, that has potential food waste, how do they get in touch with you to to donate this? We try and make it as simple as possible because obviously there's a lot of moving parts. 
Um, what we do is we actually use a web-based technology um, that sort of functions as an app. And anyone that wants to be a food donor or anyone who wants to be a receiving agency like a shelter or a food bank or anyone who wants to be a volunteer can actually go on our website. It's foodrescue.us. Okay. Um, and register. And that way they can have access to our schedule. They can have access to everything that we're doing. If they're a food donor, they can actually sign up to make a donation. And we use this technology to really track every rescue so that if someone says, gee, you know, how many rescues did did I do? How much food was donated? Um, we're able to provide that data and that statistics. And that's really what's very gotten very important for us is really managing the data and being aware of how much we are rescuing. We've rescued over five and a half million pounds of food. That is incredible. And what amount of time frame are we talking about? Uh, just about four years. Wow. Um, I started it four years ago, kind of as a part-time, you know, fun thing to do. Um, I live on Miami Beach. I went to the hotel next door and I said, what are you doing with all that brunch? And they said, oh, we throw it out. And I'm like, uh, no, I'm going to come and pick it up. Wow. Uh, so so tell me what, because uh, I'm really curious as to how you got involved in doing this kind of food. Tell me a little bit about your life pre-food <laughs> rescue. Um, let's, let's put it this way. I um, started, you know, I lived in the New York area. I was in business. I was actually a fashion executive in the shoe business. Really? Um, totally not relating to food at all. Uh, but I was always the one that people went to uh, during market weeks because I lived in the city and they felt I knew where were the great places to eat to mm -hmm. take their buyers and their customers or whatever. Um, so I was very, always very interested in food, and I started writing for a food blog up in Connecticut, CT Bites, okay. as in Connecticut Bites. Okay. Um, and then when I retired and moved down here, I started Miami Bites, M-I-A Bites. And that's where a lot um, of folks, uh, especially in the restaurant community, you got connected exactly. with. Exactly. And, and it was interesting because when I started M-I-A Bites, there was, there was the Herald and a couple of other publications there was no eater. There was no time out. So it was sort of, I sort of felt like it was like a new frontier. Um, obviously, it, the food scene has grown and is pretty phenomenal down here in the Miami area. But that's really how I started. And I met a lot of chefs and I kept hearing about how much got wasted, especially events. Um, and it just started to really bother me. It just didn't make sense. Because um, a lot of folks, I think, might have felt that way, might have said, oh, what are you going to do this food? Oh, we're going to throw it away. And you just walk home thinking, what a shame. Right. And then do nothing about it. That's right. That's but, right. So what was different? What, what was different with you? What made you flip that switch? I think what happened is, you know, I, you know, I drive around town and I would see homeless people. Um, and then I would see, you know, I live on Miami Beach. I would see what the hotels were throwing out. Um, you know, there were a couple of articles about people that were doing dumpster diving and, and just food insecurity. And I started to do a little bit of research, saw the statistics, and I said, this, this is insane. You know, we are in a city that is hospitality driven. We have hotels, we have top restaurants, we have every market that you could ever want. And I just started to really do some research and found out that pretty much everyone was throwing out the food. Yeah. 
And, and that was really how it started. I mean, among our big donors, I mean, we rescue from the fountain blue almost every day. And this is food that never left the kitchen. Right. It's just food that they had uh, prepped. In, in, prepped in their, you know, in their cold area and they had prepped it and then, and, oh, it was never ordered or what have you. And it was never, they never put it together for a, for a exactly. dish or what have you. Exactly. So give me some other examples because I think it hel- it really helps to help uh, people kind of frame the image of, you know, what can be given away. And if there's someone out there thinking, oh, I wonder if this is something that can be noted. Give me, give me some, sure. some of that wide ranging examples. You know, we really at this point four years into this rescue from such a variety of places. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, the hotels are huge donors for us. Fountain Blue, One Hotel, um, they've all been, you know, really reliable weekly donors. Uh, We also rescue from a number of restaurants. Um, Yardbird is a perfect example. Uh, Kiki on the River. uh, So what are you seeing? Like at a restaurant, what kind of things are... Or do you see regular coming from restaurants? It's not huge trays of food. Like, mm-hmm. for example, the Fountain Blue this past week, we picked up over 70 huge deep steam trays of prepared food. Wow. Wow. I mean, 70, 70 trays. 70 trays. Yes. Um, the restaurants, it's really just some surplus. It could be some leftover fried chicken from brunch. Mm. You know, Yardbird, for example, will give us some of their fried chicken, some of their biscuits. Um, we've rescued at Red Rooster where we may get chicken and waffles and pancakes, things that have been made, you know, in preparation for service that for whatever reason have not been served. And Uh, it seems like you're also saying that Every little bit counts. Like you, every little you bit guys counts. will come get every little bit. We'll come get every little bit. Though we started something last year, which has been really kind of an interesting evolution, and we just call it Save the Food. Hmm. And we've worked with a couple of restaurants where we've said, Save your food. If you have half a pot of rice, if you have, you know, two pieces of chicken, don't throw it out, put it in your cooler. And in a couple of days of, of collecting that food, there may be enough there to turn it into a couple of meals. And we'll pick them up and take them to families that are food insecure. And we've done that with Cafe La Trova. Um, Michelle Bernstein worked with us and prepared meals that we took to a senior center over in Little Havana. Mm. Uh, We've worked with Red South Beach. Uh, Chef Peter has done some amazing meals for a group on Miami Beach, many of which are undocumented. So we're encouraging restaurants to not throw out that half pot of green beans or protein or whatever and really save it and then maybe put it together. Maybe it's just a couple meals. It could be only two meals. We'll pick them up and go take them somewhere. It's uh, this idea instead of uh, when you put your trash out twice a week, instead of putting your trash, you put your, you reserve these things That's and right. you're able to put out these meals for people. It's sort of our version of chopped It's <laughs> really what it is. You've got all these leftovers. Okay, what meals can I create? So we sort of do our own version of chopped. It's interesting that you also keep it local. In other yes. words, like the Red is a steakhouse on Miami Beach and it's donated to a a group in Miami Beach. Correct. And La, La Trova, it's donated to a group in Little Havana. Exactly. And so that's like an important part too, is making sure that food is remains fresh and what have you. Well, I think what makes us different from a lot of other organizations is we are very transparent about where we're taking the food. It's no secret. Hmm. Uh, we don't have a warehouse. We don't have trucks. We don't, I don't have an office. 
uh, we really direct transfer the food from where we pick it up and usually to the closest receiving agency in the community. So anyone that donates knows that they're feeding people in their own backyard. Um, and some of our bigger donors, you know, include markets, you know, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods. They donate multiple times a week with us, and we're very transparent. It's not going to a warehouse and getting sorted in a big box. Um, it's actually going directly to, you know, a food bank or a food pantry. And, th- and this is a, a good chance to kind of reiterate, like, those places are obviously aware of things like this Good Samaritan Act. Yes. That you can donate without fear, of, like, as long as you're donating in good faith, without fear of liability and yep. what have you. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's such a, it's such a good point. Um, you mentioned that this food that you collect, you treat it like chop baskets. <laughs> so you don't just take the, the food in whole and just say, here's a bunch of kale or here's a bunch of lettuce. What? How, how does that how does that translate? Well, we kind of leave that to the chefs because we're just sort of the transfer agency. So with Cafe La Trova, it was leftover, you know, rice and beans from the week, uh, maybe some arroz con pollo. There's different things, and it could be a variety of meals. It may not be 10 of the same. It may be, okay, there was a leftover pork chop. There was leftover chicken. So we sort of leave that to the chefs to sort of do their version of chopped and, and be creative. Um, and it's really been very, very successful. And the, the people that are getting the food, you know, you're getting top chef food. You're not getting like a dried up deli sandwich. You are getting some amazing, amazing food. Um, if I can tell one funny anecdotal story about food. Yeah, please, food. <laughs> please, yeah. Um, someone came up to me recently um, at some kind of a conference or something and um, mentioned that they were in the healthcare field and they work with homeless, the homeless population mm-hmm. that comes in, you know, once a month for a checkup, et cetera, et cetera. And one of her clients came in and she said he looked healthy, his cheeks were full of color, he was smiling, he was really happy. And she said, what, you know, what's going on? And he said, we're getting really good food over at the shelter. And that was trays of food from the Fountain Blue had been delivered to the Miami Rescue Mission. And that's, they had turned it into meals and were feeding people. So we can really see that we're making a difference in terms of the health in a lot of people. Yeah, the Miami Rescue Mission is very close to where we are. Yes. So that's one of the organizations that you take the kind of this bulk food and then they they do something with it. No, they have their own chefs and they create yep. beyond with it. That's right. They actually serve it or in some cases, if it's freezable, they'll freeze it and they'll use it. Um, they do provide food, almost 1,500 meals a day. Um, they have their own population that is there in their recovery program, but they do offer a f- hot or a fresh meal to anyone that comes in off the street. So that's where a lot of this food ends up going. So Fifteen hundred meals is is quite a number. It's a lot. Yeah, that's it's like a, a population. That's like a population of a school every day. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah, um, Ellen, we're going to take a little bit of a break here because I want to sure. keep talking about this issue. Uh, our guest today on Sundial is Ellen Bowen. She's the site director of Food Rescue U.S. in South Florida. We'll be back on Sundial in a minute. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest today is Ellen Bowen. She's the site director of Food Rescue U.S. in South Florida. Uh, Ellen, we've been talking about, you know, obviously all the this food waste that there is. There's it's something like 40 percent 
of all the food in the U.S. gets thrown away, which is a mind-numbing number. And you're, you were telling me, actually, during, now during the break, that there's another aspect to the food waste, and that's that there's an environmental impact. Can I, I don't know about that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, to be honest with you, I didn't know about it either when I first started doing this. I was really focused on, you know, reducing waste and getting food to food insecure. Mm-hmm. Um, but recently, there's been studies to show that decomposing food in landfills um, actually produces a very harmful greenhouse gas called methane and that methane is actually 86 times more potent than CO2. So there's statistics now, and there have been a number of environmental conferences, you know, COP26, COP27, Mm -hmm. um, that are all reporting now that if we can reduce food waste, we can actually reverse climate change. And that's Uh, such a huge topic here in Miami, obviously, in a a coastal city like ours. And so it's really, what I found is that it's, that's part of the message now. Um, and it's certainly a message that is appealing to a whole new sector of people. Um, all of a sudden, the schools are taking interest in what we're doing. Um, young people, students, they're all embracing the idea that food waste that ends up in landfills is really damaging their environment and their future. So we have found sort of a whole new energy around this movement that really focuses on climate and rising seas and and storms and all and the flooding and all of that that it really does tie back to all that food that ends up in the landfills. You know, I'm curious because so many of these environmental reasons that we talk about these environmental issues, they can all they're all they, they can all be addressed on the front end. Yes. So when you talk about the food waste as a as a this problem that exists that then we try to solve by getting it to the people who need the food. What are the discussions like about how do you address this on the front end? In other words, keeping food from becoming food waste. That's probably the most challenging because we are a world and a country certainly of options and excess. Um, Plant-based diets, for example, are much better for the environment than meat, fish, and poultry diets. Um, and a lot of that is because of what it takes to raise cattle and and all of the things that go into the range, you know, living on the range. Um, and that also produces methane gas. So on the front end, you know, obviously we're probably not going to give up meat, chicken, and fish. Uh, but if you can increase plant-based foods into your diet and eat more of those, that does help reduce methane because that doesn't break down in a landfill nearly as much as as the meat products do. It doesn't produce as much methane. And obviously composting um, is another, you know, option. Um, Just, you know, because we don't rescue scraps. Right. Yeah, we don't rescue. It's not like after a a (laughs) lunch or dinner has been had, we're not talking about scraping the plate. Yeah, exactly. And And we won't rescue from something that the consumer has been able to touch Mm -hmm. you know if it's a buffet that's served that's okay but if it's a self-service buffet we really we really can't rescue that at all um so i think you know plant-based diets work um and also you know everyone at home you know shop smartly don't overbuy you know look in your refrigerator use your leftovers as much as you can you know i think a lot of it is consumer awareness and i think we can all do a better job of how we shop 
and also a better job of how we prepare and we use the food that we have purchased. That's a good point. I, we had the chef Neven Patel on, who's, sure. who's got his own farm. Yes, uh, that he Rancho uses, Patel. Rancho Patel, which he uses uh, <laughs> for his restaurants. And he talked about his eyes being open one day where a, a chef cut open a tomato, used half of it, and threw parts of it into the trash. Ouch. And so when you see things like that, what can you, you know, what, what other kinds of things would you recommend to folks? Like when they're a place that you're seeing has consistent amount of food waste, do you go to them and say, you know, you could probably be doing something with this before it even gets to us? That's hard because that's yeah. really not what we can do. Um, you know, I, I do get upset when I see so much food that we do pick up like at one of the markets that mm -hmm. we work with because none of it's expired. It's just, you know, they get a new shipment in of eggs. So they rotate out the old shipment of oh, eggs. Oh, those eggs now. That's I like a <laughs> <laughs> Oh, trust me. We had a box of eggs and we were like, oh, this is like gold. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? And we were cutting them in half so that, you know, when we give, we do these big food distributions once a month where we actually consolidate all of our rescues from five different markets and set up in uh, various underserved communities. We've been in Overtown, Little Haiti, we've been in Little Havana, we've been in Liberty City, and we actually do these food distributions where we actually give out the food, like we call it our farmer's market. Okay. We try and make it very respectful. We don't ask any questions. We give everybody a, a sh recyclable, reusable shopping tote, and we let them shop the line and take whatever they want. Um, How can folks find out about those? Where where are those markets are they posted anywhere? Or? They're most most. I was gonna say most of our communications through our Instagram page. I mean, we do have Food Rescue US dot so flow as in South Florida. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. What's your Instagram handle? Uh, <laughs> food Rescue US dot so flow. Okay, food and rescue that's, US. That's so where flow. you can get information about where we are, what we're doing. Um, we're always posting pictures. Um, I have an amazing network of volunteers who I really have to shout out because that's what we are. We're all it's in a whole volunteer network, and there's probably over four hundred that have registered. You know, on our website. And we do about 75 rescue pickups every single week. This is interesting. Tell me about how it works. Since you got, you mentioned earlier, you don't have an office. You don't have a, a big infrastructure. So how, take me through it. How does someone say, I, I volunteer? How does that volunteer work into the bigger picture? Am I driving to a location? How does that work? Um, generally, what we do is if, when someone reaches out and says they'd like to be involved, we have them register on our website, foodrescue.us. Um, and then they have access to the schedule. So every rescue is posted on our schedule. And it's posted the day, the time, where the pickup is, approximately what you're picking up, um, and how much of it, so that you know what size car you should maybe be bringing. Right, if I'm driving a, my, my, you a know, my, Fiat. My, my golf, right? <laughs> right, your golf cart would not work at some of these rescues. Um, and generally contact info. Okay. also um, and pretty much you can claim it on the schedule and then you just go do the rescue you go and you pick it up they expect you they know you're coming you check in you pick it up you put it in your car you take it to wherever the receiving agency that we set up to match with it 
And they're pretty, and like you, we were saying earlier, they're local, so we're not talking about driving across town in most, Miami traffic. I was going to say most rescues take between a half hour to an hour. Mm. Um, you know, okay. we'll pick we'll pick up in Coral Gables and we'll take it to Coconut Grove. Uh, we'll pick up Midtown Miami and we'll take it to Overtown. I would say most of our rescues are, are really within five miles. And and tell me about your volunteers. Like who who is so your? Great. Tell me about some of them as far as uh, you know who what makes a good volunteer. You know it's it's such a variety, and we have everything from you know doctors to lawyers in, in top corporate jobs. We have school teachers. We of course have a few you know snowbirds and retirees. Um, all ages. We have college kids. We have high school kids that are doing, you know, community service hours. So maybe mom is driving. Oh, okay. But they're there. Um, it's really a variety of, of executives and stay-at-home moms. Um, do you have like a, is it is there like a wait list or are you guys always hungry for new volunteers? We're always or? looking for volunteers because we're always getting rescues. You know, I just, um, before I came here, I was meeting with um, a new food donor down in, in Coral Gables. And once we agreed that they want to donate two days a week, my next challenge is, okay, now I need to find somebody who can go on Wednesdays and go on Fridays and decide where to take it. And we're always adding new receiving agencies. Um, we right now have about 155 food donors. And it runs the gamut from Hard Rock Stadium mm. and the Miami Beach Convention Center all the way down to a bakery. Wow. So, so we really run run the gamut. And, and Hard Rock, you know, we rescued at the Super Bowl. Oh, which... tell me about that. What was that like? <laughs> That was the Super Bowl. <laughs> um, we were there the day after uh, while they were still breaking everything down. And it took us three days with about 100 volunteers working, you know, all day. They would just bring in speed racks of food that had never left the kitchen. And I'm talking wow. about trays of lobster tails, beautifully merchandise trays of charcuterie all of these things were prepped and ready to go mostly to the vip suites because let's face it if you're going to pay that money for a vip suite you don't want someone to say sorry we're out of the filet mignon oh wow so they're they're ordering and over ordering they're in a lot of cases exactly and we actually last year were invited um back for formula one so we were there for three days, also post Formula One, rescuing all the food left from that insane. Which was another Miami, big event for South Florida, yeah. Yeah, Grand Prix, and we'll be back again this year. So I definitely need volunteers. <laughs> I think for uh, Formula One, we use about hundred. We need about one hundred and twenty-five volunteers. So if anyone's out there and has a company that wants to send me five or ten volunteers and do a shift. Please reach out to me because that's really ha- that's what makes it work. Tell me about the, the volunteers. Is there is there a trait that you see in common between people that that give their time to to do this kind of thing? I think wanting to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's nice about our particular model is you're not just making phone calls or writing letters. Um, you're actually very hands on. You know, you'll, you go to the donor, you get to know the chef who's donating the food or the, sh- the manager who's in charge of donations at the market. 
Um, and then on the other end, when you drop off the food, you're also getting to know the people that are working at the shelter or at the food bank or the soup kitchen. And it becomes this very much, I think, personal interaction. And especially, you know, during COVID and post-COVID, you know, to be able to see yourself making a difference and to be able to really interact on, on a personal level with people maybe less fortunate than you. Um, I think for me, it's become the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, and I think most of my volunteers feel the same way. They really feel that they're making a difference. I, I know that kind of we started talking about how you first became so interested in this thing. In other words, seeing this food waste and saying, you know, I can't let this go on uh, while I have uh, the ability to do something about it. How has it changed you? How has it affected hmm. your life? Well, first of all, I definitely shop a lot less for food. Hmm. And I definitely use um, leftovers as much as I can. Um, I'm in love with my air fryer, <laughs> which I dump all kinds of things in there, especially vegetables that maybe would be turning kind of soon. Um, so I think my shopping and eating habits have definitely changed. And I also, you know, go into markets and sort of take a look in their dumpster. Really, on to occasion, see it, to see why, to yeah, see what exactly. Sometimes they're still dumping things. Oh. Um, you know, that's unfortunate. Um, I think the biggest problem with this particular type of movement is you have to have somebody that takes ownership. Um, and everywhere we're successful, it's because a chef or a Sue or somebody on the staff says, I want to do this. I'm going to make this part of my job description. Um, there are certain markets uh, where it is part of a job description, where they've actually made that part of their, their model to give back to the community. So I think the minute you have somebody that says, I want to do this and take ownership, it becomes much, much easier to get it done. But that's what's important. And I want to talk more about uh, the continuing need there is, especially post-COVID, uh, but we're going to take a little break. Uh, we're talking to Ellen Bowen. She's the site director of Food Rescue U.S. in South Florida, uh, where they try to help eliminate food waste and get it to people who need it. We'll be back on Sundial in a minute. back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias, and our guest, again, is Ellen Bowen. Uh, she's the site director of Food Rescue U.S. in South Florida. Um, Ellen, I think there's a, there's a, we were talking about you're always in the need of volunteers, and I think that's because there's always a need for this food. Can you just talk a little bit about how how you've seen that change like pre post COVID? Like, is there, is there more of a need for services like, like what you guys do or there really, there really is. I mean, and just, you know, we're all sort of living in this post-COVID world, and it's sort of a blur, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we, it's hard to kind of envision what we went through and what things were like. Um, well, take me through that. How did that it, affect? If you, yeah. If you were, yeah, because you were talking about you rescuing from restaurants and cruise ships, and all of a sudden, there are no cruises. All the restaurants are closed. Farms, uh, which were then shipping things to these places, are stuck with this product. How did COVID affect you guys at the beginning? Well, initially, you know, once they, and I remember the date. I mean, it was like March 15th. March 15th, they announced that they were closing all the hotels. 
March 17th, they announced they were closing all the restaurants. So and basically, we, we were done rescuing, but we weren't. Because all of a sudden, when you start closing those kinds of businesses for an indefinite period, there's food. And there's food that you've purchased. There's food in your freezer. There's food in your walk-in. And all of a sudden, the phone was ringing off the hook as every hotel and every restaurant was reaching out to us saying, you know, can you take what we can't freeze? Um, and so we basically rented trucks and my team of volunteers, we jumped in our cars, you know, with masks and gloves. And we drove up and down, you know, Miami Beach and inland to really rescue whatever it was that we could and, and take it over to the various shelters. So it was kind of stressful, but it was also, you know, no one knew where we were going next. Um, it was all at once and usually more than you were used to saving because it now it's lot. their whole inventories of it things was, that It spoil. was everything. And even, you know, the cruise ships, the farms, as you said, you know, the news had stories of farmers just plowing under their vegetables. I wrote a couple of those. Because they just didn't know what to do with it. And we did the best we could, yeah. you know, under the circumstances. Um, but what was really interesting is that then we pivoted because we realized people were still hungry. Right, like it was a slow-moving disaster yeah. because these these industries that were oh. that where food was served, now these people are out of work and maybe are the ones who need the, exactly. the, the, the food Exactly. The statistics rest. of furloughed restaurant and hospitality workers was staggering. Um, I remember talking to one man at the Fountain Blue who told me that he had two jobs there. He was, you know, a bartender at one, during one and then he worked the club at night and he lost both his jobs wow. and he had a wife and he had kids at home so all of a sudden there was this whole unemployment furloughed situation um so we got creative we we pivoted mm -hmm. um fortunately a couple of organizations gave us some grants um we we'd never really had money before but they gave us grants to try and feed people and we partnered with restaurants and actually paid them to keep their employees staffed, keep them working, um, get food, make meals, and then we would distribute the meals right out of the restaurant. So it was sort of like a takeout model. It was different than like, I guess World Central Kitchen makes meals and hands them out, but they do it from a central location. We actually did it right in the restaurant because we wanted to reach the neighborhood. So, you know, we'd started at Red Rooster was the first one. They'd never opened. They were a week away from their grand opening. And then they closed. Uh, they had they delayed their opening. They never opened, right? Yeah. They never opened. But we went in, and for 10 weeks, we worked every single day of the week with the with Chef Tristan Epps and his team and turned out over 10,000 meals. That's amazing. You were working with uh, World Central Kitchen at a the time? Bit, yeah. they, a little they bit, yeah. They came in in the beginning because mm -hmm. we had no idea how to even structure this. Because you had changed your whole model. We, Totally pivoted. But the idea still being, Feed let's people. get... It was all about feeding people. Um, and then we, we moved on. We were, we were at Alter um, for a while. We were at uh, Cafe La Trova. We were on the beach at Tequiza. We were all over the place. We ended up uh, funding over 25 restaurants to keep their staff employed. We are at Boya wow. Day uh, to keep their staff employed so that they could prepare meals and feed, in some cases, their own employees. Right, and this went on for many months. It, about 18 months, we were doing a lot of feeding. Wow. Because yeah. we, we, 
dialed it back as things started to get better, but we continued in Little Haiti at Chef Creole um, every week because that community just always seems to be in need. Chef Creole himself was very involved yes. uh, from what I saw all on social media. He yep. was really... Yeah, he was he was great. And, you know, when our funding ran out, you know, he donated the food. We provided the volunteers. And that's that was really our model all during COVID is our volunteers would show up and we had gloves and masks and sanitizers and we were six feet away and we would just hand out a meal, a meal, a meal, you know, multiple times a week from different restaurants. What was that like for you to, to, to be involved and, and being helping in this, in this new kind of way? You know, it was, it was doing something, yeah. you know, so many of us with, with COVID shutting down, you know, really were afraid to leave our homes. Um, you know, we, we did. All of us did. None of us got COVID, which was amazing. Wow, during that that's whole, amazing. During that whole time period. Uh, but we, you know, we were very, very careful. And it just, we really felt like we were helping people that really had no place to go. Um, especially when I saw the faces of, you know, people that had never faced food insecurity before. They had jobs. And all of a sudden, their job was gone. And they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And that was when we really realized that, you know, hunger, hunger is a basic, basic need. You should, food is a basic need. You should not be hungry for any reason. And to see people come who had never experienced hunger before or food insecurity um, was really, it was heartbreaking in a lot of cases, but at the same sense, when we saw them walk away, I remember at one of our uh, food meal distributions one man came up to me and he said i just want to thank you when i get back on my feet i'm going to come here and buy my meal wow so amazing was, at one of the restaurants at one of the restaurants yeah goosebumps yeah. i know but yeah it was, it was a tequiza a tequiza <laughs> it was a tequiza all right give a shout out to the to tequiza <laughs> right, exactly. mexican restaurant taco that's restaurant right. out on the beach um you know food deserts are a big problem in miami like that's a continuing problem that um areas that don't have a lot of that fresh produce and, and access to, to food, to, re, to real food, not stuff that comes in a plastic package. Um, tell me about how you guys have worked with them and, and, and even like community fridges. Have you guys worked with this? Oh, I know, absolutely. Because I know those were a big solution yep. uh, around Miami for a while, especially during COVID. Well, a food desert is really defined as any place where you cannot buy fresh produce, fresh fruit. Um, when you, when you, drive around areas like Little Haiti, um, Overtown, Liberty City, Alapata, those are defined as food desert. You know, there's a corner bodega, uh, but there's really no access to fresh fruit or fresh produce or really healthy food. So those are really the areas we try and focus in on. Um, and yes, we work with the community refrigerators. We stock them all multiple times a week. Um, we think that that's a really important way that people can get food respectfully. Um, it's sad because they know when we're coming and they will, you know, a lot of the recipients will stand online and patiently wait until we've stocked the refrigerator and then they'll go and, you know, take their item and move on. Um, so we do see a lot of people waiting online, which we never had before. Uh, I think a lot of people are recognizing that there are these refrigerators out there where they can get the food. Um, same thing with our distributions. Once a month when we do, 
you know, these five different uh, markets, uh, the sort of farmer's market that we do, people know when we're coming and they wait online with their shopping carts. And in some cases, you know, we start our distribution at noon, they're lining up at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, but we're trying to, you know, we're trying to reach as many places as possible and really branch out. Uh, most of the places that we work with, nobody else services. You know, the big organizations, these are not fancy um, food banks with air conditioning. These are like former, you know, beauty salons that are now shelved and a couple of beat up old refrigerators inside. Uh, that's that's really who we work with. Yeah. Some of the companies that I've, you know, are the organizations we've heard about over the years are things like uh, Farm Share and mm -hmm. Feeding South Florida. How do you guys interact? I mean, is there like competition or is it do you guys work together or, or not at all? Or? Um, you know, they have a different model. You know, their model is very much large scale. Uh, they have big warehouses. They sort the food. Um, they have member pantries that they deliver the food to. They have member donors that they work with that I think are contractual. Mm -hmm. um, so I really find that what we do is sort of supplement that. We work with the places that can't afford to be in their membership or even the donors that want to have the transparency of where we're delivering the food. So I think they're different models. I mean, I respect them and they do amazing work. And those drive-through distributions that they hosted during COVID, I think were critical for a lot of people being able to, to eat every week. Um, so I think the large scale model is, is very important, but again, they have trucks, they have warehouses, you know, they have all of that. You guys, it sounds like you guys can fill in fill in those gaps and, and have really, in a lot of ways, have really personal connections with folks who really wanna help, yes. uh, who see a need and wanna help and then can directly help. In many ways, I feel we make a bigger difference uh, because we're really in the communities that need it most. Um, and we are in your neighborhood, you know, we're in your backyard. Um, I think with some of the big organizations, when they pick up from, I don't know, a Target, um, and they take it to their warehouse and they sort it, you don't really know where that food's going to go. It, it, it may end up, you know, in Cocoa Beach. It may end up on the west coast of Florida. Uh, we really pride ourselves on being very upfront about where we're picking it up, where it's going, and that it's going to be there in a half hour. How has this affected the people around you? In other words, you're the food rescue lady. So, right. so like, tell me about how that's affected your, you know, friends and family life. Do people now come to you? Do you do you think do you feel like you're making an impact around those? Well, I do you? have neighbors that are volunteers <laughs> that have volunteered. I've dragged my husband okay. more than once to volunteer. Um, my kids as well. Uh, but it's interesting. I've sort of created a whole new group of friends. You know, among my volunteers, some of them I've become very close to. Um, there's a personal connection with them as much as there is with what we're doing. Um, so I think personally, it's it's been very rewarding. Certainly not something that I thought five years ago I would be doing. Um, it sort of surprised me. You know, I, I always think of myself as philanthropic, but, you know, I'd go to those benefits and buy a silent auction item that I would never use, you know, things like that. Um, but to really be hands-on involved in this has really changed my life for the better. 
Um, and I think it has for anyone that's been volunteering with us. You know, most of our volunteers have been there long time and continue to do it. And if I, we get an emergency rescue because the power went out at Whole Foods or something, I have four or five of them that will just jump in their cars and go rescue the food. So I think it's changed a lot of people's lives for the better. Yeah. I, how, how do you see that you're like you, you're in your kid's life are different than they were five years ago? Like what was your life before versus now, you know? Oh, uh, what was my life like before? <laughs> well, I was sort of like retired from the fashion business. I was on Miami Beach. I you're was, too young to be retired. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. But, um, you know, I was just going to like enjoy sitting on the beach and going out to dinner, you know, writing for uh, Miami Bites was, you know, something I really enjoyed doing and meeting chefs. Um, I wasn't about the reviews. I was more about the backstory and the history of the chefs. So that was kind of where it was. And then this just sort of took this interesting turn. Um, and there's been really no looking back. I'm definitely not retired anymore. <laughs> I, I'm trying to get to the beach, but it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah, we got all we got all these New Yorkers out there. Now. I know, I know the traffic. I that's blame the, you. That's the biggest problem with the rescues right now is the traffic. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Just getting from point A to point B. You know, I've told most of my volunteers and even my donors, all right, we will pick up between ten and twelve, but. After three o'clock, don't ask us to come pick up food because yeah, you can't get anywhere. Like the rest of us, stay off the roads after three thirty. <laughs> so, what about your this you know, MIA bites that you started as a blog, kind of looking behind? Do you spend any time with that, or has it changed over the years? Um, I would say that it's definitely changed over the years. You know, when that was all I was doing, and it was prior to so many other influencers and bloggers writing. You know, I had four or five amazing people that wrote for me, strictly volunteer, um, just out of the passion of what was going on in the food business. It was exciting to see young new chefs um, pushing boundaries, you know, trying new ingredients, doing some great new things. Um, so I think initially that was what was appealing and most of what we covered was not traditional reviews. It was really more who's trying something, what's going on, what's new. Um, I think blogging has definitely evolved um, into certainly more Instagram. I'm not sure anyone's even reading blogs, uh, but certainly more Instagram and more Instagrammable kinds of visuals, um, which frankly don't interest me um, as, as a blogger. So I pretty much, you know, use Miami Bites to highlight a new place that I like or a chef that I respect um, or an event that I think is really cool. Um, and that's kind of how, how I use it. Um, and I have, still have a nice following and I still get nice feedback. So, you know, it lives on. How, how is, you know, really devoting your time to rescuing food and getting it to, and, and reducing food waste and getting it to the right people. How has that changed your outlook on kind of like the food ecosystem in general? Um, I'm very sensitive to the chefs and the restaurants that embrace this. Um, I really respect them. Um, and it's amazing how many will call me just out of the blue and say, listen, you know, we had an event that got canceled or not as many people showed up. Can you come get the food? 
Um, I have a lot of respect for those chefs. And, and it's a pretty long list at this point that, that really try to do this. Um, but I also recognize that staffing is short. Kitchen staff is short. Front of the house is short. To ask a chef um, or, you know, chef de cuisine to, okay, now don't throw anything out. I want you to pack it up and put it in the walk-in. I'm asking them to make extra steps. And so I think the ones that choose to do that, I have a lot of respect for because I think they really understand that this is not only going to people that need it, but that they're also doing their part for the environment. And those, you know, that's where I see the shift is there's more and more chefs and more and more restaurants that are finding a way to get this done. And if you want to find out how you can help, how you can be part of uh, Food Rescue U.S., how you can volunteer your time, um, and uh, how you can get food to the people who need it, uh, you can check out their Instagram. It's at foodrescueus.soflo, S-O-F-L-O. Thank you. Ellen Bowen is the site director of Food Rescue U.S. in South Florida. Her organization looks to eliminate food waste and distribute unused food uh, to people who need it. Ellen, thank you so much for making time thank for us. Thank you, Carlos. And that's Sundial for Wednesday, February 22nd. Leslie Ovalle-Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Engineering our board operations today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. If you missed any part of our conversation today, you can download our podcast. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we continue to hear from people in the food industry this month. Cindy and Jeremy Behrman left big-name, award-winning restaurants to start something of their own. They're both nominated as co-chefs for Best Chef in the South at their little restaurant, Oceano Kitchen, in Lantana. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.